guys want to turn with me to John um, chapter 19. The Gospel of John chapter 19. That's our main text for tonight. Good to see you guys. Um, I told you guys at the beginning of the semester um, that I'm a kind of a sucker for a really good story. Um, that's kind of why we've been doing this story of scripture deal on Wednesday nights. Um, we've kind of traced the plot line of the Bible, how the Bible really kind of consistently tells one consistent story of what God has done to really bring redemption to his people, um, into his world, into his universe. And, um, you know, stories, one, one kind of common feature of stories is stories tend to build to a moment of climax. Like, they tend to build toward this one sort of explosive, powerful sort of moment that kind of changes everything. Um, and the story of Scripture certainly has that. Um, and the tension sort of in the story of Scripture has been building to this moment of the cross. Um, and that's kind of what we'll explore tonight. Um, so the biblical story begins with a, with a God who's, who's very big and grand and gracious and good. And um, he decides that he's going to create people. Um, to reflect that glory and to display that glory. Um, but then we learn that this God, um, that the people that he's made really just reject him and they, they spur his glory and they say they're not interested in doing things his way. So he's going to go about trying to win them back and to reassert his rule and his reign and reestablish his glory um, in his world. But the weird thing is that he chooses to do this in the most interesting Upside down, confusing, strange, unexpected, surprising way possible. Um, as we explore this story, it's not going to really look like he's glorifying himself. Um, but what we learn is that this moment, the moment of the cross, is actually the beauty and the glory um, of God on fullest display. So that's kind of what we'll explore tonight. So John um, chapter 19. Um, my hope tonight really is that we just kind of take a look at the cross, that we follow the story that's given to us, that we let it shock us, um, and that we place all our hope in this Jesus who's crucified. Um, and I know we've heard this so many times, but my prayer is that we would really just hear it tonight, maybe in a fresh way. Um, so we're going to read John chapter 19, um, verses 1 through 30. It's kind of a long text to read, so kind of hang with me. <clears throat> then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you know that I have the authority to release you 
and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to, fill the, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, what we proclaim tonight happens to be the most important thing in the world. God, so we do ask that you would speak to us. Um, Lord, we ask that you'd be our teacher. God, what a waste of time this would be. Lord, if we come here and we don't hear your voice. So we do ask that you would be so kind, you'd be so gracious, Lord, to give us a sense of who you really are. Um, Lord, to help us um, get a sense of what it means to know you in your fullest glory, God, and that 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 would shape us and change us, Lord, that it would make us a community of this cross. Um, Lord, so we do pray that you would just be so kind as to um, take these words that I prepared, Lord. Would you make them your word to us and for us tonight? Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our King. Amen.
So the Gospel of John, um, there's a lot of conversation in the Gospel of John about Jesus' hour. Um, several things happen in the Gospel of John, and he'll say things like, my hour has not yet come. And he says things like, you know, now it is time for me to be glorified. Now it's time, like, Father, I've glorified you. Now please glorify me. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. There's all this talk in the Gospel of John about a moment that's going to come in which Jesus will be glorified. Um, and within the fuller biblical story, this is a moment when, when God's going to finally reassert his rule and his reign. Um, he's going to finally kind of take back the world that he's made that's been kind of made, you know, it's been captured by sin and by death and by evil. And, and you read this and you're looking forward to this moment. And if you could read the Gospel of John for the first time without knowing what we know as these Christians who've grown up in a church, you'd be waiting for this grand, great, triumphant moment in which God sort of kind of rides in, um, beats people up, whatever it is, conquers, does whatever he does, and then he becomes king again and he, and he gets on his throne. Um, that's kind of what you expect, but then this happens. I mean, look at the beginning of chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. Um, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. Okay, so the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Gospel of John tells us the one um, by which everything was made, the Word, who's always been. Um, we find out that he is taken, he's beaten, um, he's mocked. A crown thrown on his head so some Roman soldiers can make sport of him. Um, he's made fun of in other gospel accounts. He's spit on. Um, they slap him around, kick him around. And, and this is the way that God glorifies himself? Kind of look, look down to um, verse 10. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And the authority to crucify you? So, so Jesus, okay, the God of the universe who has all authority, has a chance to use his authority to do whatever he wants to do. Matthew tells us that he says, don't you know, I could call down thousands of angels to defend me right now. He's got authority. He's got all authority. But he, he chooses not to use it. But instead, he chooses to lay himself down. This doesn't exactly look like a kind of king who's trying to glorify himself. I mean, it looks like he's being taken advantage of. It looks like he's... It just doesn't look like the kind of glory we expect. Does that make sense? Okay, move on down. Just, just these scenes. Um, next thing we hear, verse 12. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cry out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. If we move on down to verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Okay, so in the Jewish, early Jewish first century imagination, sort of the Romans are the problem. Um, the fact that Gentile rulers rule over the people of God, like this is kind of problem number one for the Jews in the first century. But in this moment, when their true, rightful king has arrived and he's come, and in the Gospel of John, he's doing these signs that point to who he really is. At this moment, his people, we find out in John 1 that Jesus came, but his people did not embrace him. He came to his own, but they did not know him. So in this moment, his people choose to trade him 
the rightful king, for a pagan Roman king. I mean, listen to what they say. We have no king but Caesar. What? I mean, this is a very strange way to glorify yourself for people, the people who are your people that you've come for, to choose not to want to accept and embrace you. This is a very strange way of bringing about your glorifying kind of moment, isn't it? Verse 17, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. So the one, Jesus, who deserves to be served and deserves to be honored, he has to bear his own cross, the instrument of his own death. And John wants to emphasize the whole time that, that Jesus is in control of this situation. He hasn't been caught up in sort of, a, sort of a chaotic kind of political situation, but he's very much in control. He has the authority, he's choosing to use his authority to lay himself down and then to pick up his own cross and to go forward with his mission. So the one who deserves to be served, deserves to be waited on, deserves um, all these things as the rightful king of the universe. He has to drag a piece of wood up where he's going to get himself killed. It's kind of a strange way to glorify yourself. Um, Look at verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Okay, so the perfectly holy righteous... God is found between two sinners, two criminals crucified. I mean, like, what is a God doing between two sinners? Well, according to the Bible, this is the best place that God likes to be. It's the place God likes to show up the most. Um, The God of the Bible actually likes to be where sinners are. Um, This is really good news for us, by the way. So when you read the story of the Bible, it seems strange that a pure and holy God would want to be with sinners, but... Um, This is the kind of God that we have in our scriptures. He's actually right where he belongs, right in the middle of sinners. It goes on down, um, and we find out that they write, King of the Jews, and even the Jews, and all the people who are opposing Jesus, who want him crucified, they get angry because it says the King of the Jews, and they don't want this Jesus guy being labeled as the King of the Jews. So they ask Pilate to take away the words. And Pilate says in verse 22, what I have written, I have written. At this point, not even Pilate can change the truth of the statement, but Jesus really is the true king. He's not even going to change it at that point because it is really the true truth. It's strange. It's a strange way of bringing about one's glory, Um, but it's a really true way of bringing about glory. It's the kind of glory that the God of the Bible tends to to display, a glory through weakness. Um, It's kind of what this account is trying to get us to see. Look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts. One part on each soldier, also his tunic. They end up casting lots for these. This fulfills scripture. Um, But it's just strange, right? The God of the Bible, the God of the universe, deserving all honor and all glory. He gets himself mocked and beaten, but in this case, he's stripped naked. You know, the Gospels show a lot of restraint when they talk about what happens to Jesus because they want to be very respectful of him. In crucifixion, someone who was publicly humiliated and embarrassed, this is the whole point of crucifixion, was to embarrass somebody, to strip them naked, make them look stupid. It was Rome's way of saying, hey, you want to raise yourself up against Rome? Then we're going to raise you up and we're going to embarrass you and make an example of you. So so, So Jesus, the God of the universe who deserves all honor and glory, um, he ends up here naked and ashamed. 
I mean, if you remember back to the beginning of our exploration of the story of the Bible, the very first people end up naked in shame because of their sin. But the God of the universe enters into nakedness and shame um, on our behalf here. Jesus, who deserves all honor and glory, is naked and is shamed. I mean, what kind of glorifying yourself is this? This is Jesus' moment. This is the moment in the Bible in which God's glory is put on fullest display. But it looks like being embarrassed and naked and ashamed. And what is that? Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Again, Jesus, um, the God of the universe who would deserve all provision in the finest wine available. He's the king. He gets a sour drink to drink, a drink of bitterness. And he does this, and he does it for us. He drinks bitterness on this cross. We're told this little detail that a hyssop branch, back in the Exodus story, the Passover, the hyssop branch is what they used to put the blood of the lamb above the doorposts. And John wants to give us this little detail that they didn't stick this up on a reed, but they used a hyssop branch. Just kind of drawing that allusion to Jesus here, the lamb of God, the true Passover lamb. And finally, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. It's finished. It's like, what's finished? You see, the, the, the rest of the New Testament is going to try to make sense of this very strange thing. That the glory of God on fullest display looks like weakness. It looks like sacrifice. Um, it looks like being kicked around by Roman soldiers. It looks like being humiliated and embarrassed. The New Testament is going to try to make sense of what exactly was finished here. What exactly was accomplished here. You see, in the first century, to worship a God that would be crucified is the dumbest possible thing you can imagine. I mean, crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. Um, you know, you know it, Jesus says it's finished. Well, it doesn't look like it's finished, Jesus, because it looks like you just got yourself killed and embarrassed. I mean, what, what kind of glory is that? There's, there's like this um, ancient piece of graffiti um, from the first century that was found um, sort of in like a little old building or something dug up in Italy. Um, and, it, and it's from the first century, and it shows a picture, and it's like from an elementary school where some kids had sort of scribbled something on the wall. And it shows a cross, and, and the person on the cross has a human body but a donkey's head. And then next to that picture, it shows like a person bowing down to it. And then the inscription reads something along the lines of, you know, Alexander worships his God. I mean, can you picture it in like an elementary school in the first century? There's a Christian kid in the school, and, um, it, it, and there's this little drawing drawn to make fun of him. In other words, what kind of idiot would worship a God who was crucified? Like, that's dumb. And it's a donkey's head, so it's kind of like, what kind of dumb person would worship a God that was crucified? This is like the scandal of the cross. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians that this is foolishness. This is foolishness. <clears throat> But it's not the kind of foolishness that makes it, that, that, that's to say that it's not true. Okay? It's so gloriously true that the God of the Bible um, gains promotion by demotion. Um, he shows his greatest strength and weakness. 
He shows his greatest glory in sacrifice. And this is the, the, the whole moment of the biblical story that upends the wisdom of the world. It's the tension in all the biblical stories, the passion of the biblical story, that the God of the universe displays his glory by giving himself away. And what kind of God are we dealing with that would do this kind of thing? Well, only a God who is truly other, truly holy, would do this kind of thing. And the Bible is going to go on to say that, yes, Jesus was beaten and embarrassed, and he was killed. But that this happens to be all our hope. And the whole rest of the New Testament is going to try to make sense of what exactly this means. I've been reading a book um, throughout Lent um, that gives 50 reasons why Christ came to die straight from Scripture. And I've just kind of, re- I've kind of written down and sort of reworded like 28 of them. I'm just going to rattle them off. What did this mean? The fact that God would come, that he'd be embarrassed and humiliated, and through weakness would be his greatest display of glory, that laying himself down would be the greatest source of his exaltation. What does this mean? What did it accomplish? What exactly was finished, Jesus? Jesus, what was finished here? And the answer is, is, is everything. The cross accomplished these things. It bought us forgiveness for our sins. Notice how some of these are personal and some of these are cosmic, by the way, and like, and like corporate. Forgiveness for our sins, personal sins, our sins. Forgiveness for our sins. It provided the basis for our right standing with God. Um, it takes away our shame and our condemnation and our guilt. If you're here tonight and you feel ashamed and you feel condemned and you feel guilty, you've come to the right God. Um, because this is what the cross accomplished. Um, it makes us holy, blameless, and mature. Um, it has the ability to give us a clean conscience. Um, it completes the obedience of Jesus that will actually become our righteousness, the act of obedience of Christ on our behalf. Um, there's no hope without that. Um, Jesus is obedient, and therefore we get his, his obedience on our behalf. Um, it shows God's love for us. Um, earlier in the Gospel of John, we hear that it gives us life in the age that is to come. It reconciles us to God. It brings reconciliation and it abolishes hostility between races, we hear in Ephesians. It gives us confident access before God in Hebrews. Um, Jesus came to die so we might belong to God. Jesus came to die so that he would be our sympathetic high priest who can associate with us in our weakness. Um, Jesus came to die so that this message of the cross that seems so upside down and so strange can actually be the grounds of all our boasting. Um, This next one is particularly special to me. Um, The cross of Christ gives marriage its deepest meaning. Um, husbands are called to love their wife as Christ loved the church. It gives marriage its deepest meaning. Um, it creates a people passionate for good works. Um, it gives us an example of costly obedience and loneliness that we are to follow and to imitate. It frees us from the bondage of the fear of death. Um, it secures our resurrection from the dead one day. Um, and this is, these are two of my favorites too. It disarms the rulers and authorities Um, This is language in the Bible of sort of the demonic powers that are over our world, that the cross of Christ disarms those things and makes a spectacle and embarrasses them because Jesus took on the powers of evil head on and beat them in the cross. It destroys the works of the devil. 
Those, those two things right there. Um, the Bible never answers the problem of evil. The problem of evil, why do bad things happen? Or why does suffering happen if God's so good? The Bible never answers that question for us. It addresses it in the cross of Christ to say, I don't really know, but I know Jesus took the worst of it. Um, the cross of Christ creates a community of crucified followers, wherever its message is proclaimed, willing to lay down our lives for others. The cross of Christ happened to buy a people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Um, there's this famous group of missionaries in the 16th century, 15, or 17th, 16th century, called the Moravians. And they would set out to go to unreached places where, where the name of Jesus had never been proclaimed. And when they set out on the boat, they would say, May the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. Um, because the cross of Christ makes it possible for people of every tongue and tribe and nation to be redeemed. Um, the cross of Christ rescues us from God's final judgment. Um, the cross of Christ gains Jesus his own joy. We're here for the joy that was set before him. Um, he endured the cross. The cross gains Jesus' joy and our joy. Um, the cross shows that the worst evil and the worst suffering can be used to be the ultimate best thing. Um, in Philippians 2, the cross shows that it's um, the ultimate way of God glorifying himself. We hear that. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because of that, he's been highly exalted. Um, and now every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is um, Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, the cross allows Jesus himself to be crowned with glory and honor. And, and last but not least, and maybe this is kind of in all of them, the cross of Christ ultimately shows the wealth of God's love and his grace for sin. It's just a very, very strange, upside-down kind of way of achieving glory and winning back the world. Um, and we just, there are times we just don't have any idea the kind of God we're dealing with. That he's this kind of God who does these things in his cross. So Jesus, what is finished? Everything. Um, I'm a pastor, right? And... My hope would be that um, the cross of Christ would become um, the, the, the foundational thing of all your life. Um, that you would never get over the depth of what happened in the cross. That you never move on to the next thing. Um, that you wouldn't just think, yeah, I know about Jesus dying on the cross and now I'll move on to the next Christian thing. There's no other thing. Um, there's no other thing. And my hope is that it would become the thing that we as a community at UCF would, would boast in. Um, that it would begin to shape us. I mean, when the powerful God of the universe is stripped naked and embarrassed and humiliated, what would that say about how his people ought to follow him in this world? If God laid down himself, shouldn't we lay down ourselves? Um, my hope is that the cross would be shaping a shaping thing that shapes everything about who you are, who I am, who we are. Um, just as a community. I mean, this is the whole deal. Um, I pray that you guys would kind of know it and cling to it. Um, kind of in closing, I'm going I'm to read this deal. Um, some of you guys have heard me read this before. <coughs> a famous preacher once compared the cross of Christ to a hospital. And um, I want to encourage you guys to just listen to this. 
Yeah, so the cross is something that we as a community cling to, um, something that shapes us. But I want you to just kind of hear this, okay? Hear the way that, that this guy kind of does this. I know of a place in England where a ration of bread was served to every passerby who chose to ask for it. Whoever the traveler was, he had only to knock at the door of St. Cross Hospital. And there was a portion of bread for him. Jesus Christ so loves sinners that he has built a St. Cross Hospital. So that whenever a sinner is hungry, he has only to knock and have his every need supplied. No, he has done even better. He is attached to this hospital of the cross, a bath. Whenever a soul is black and filthy, he has but to go there and be washed. And the fountain is always full. It's always effective. No sinner ever went into it and found that it could not wash away his stains. Sins that were scarlet and crimson have all disappeared, and the sinner has been made whiter than snow. And as if this were not enough, there is attached to this hospital of the cross a wardrobe. And a sinner, making application simply as a sinner, may be clothed from head to foot. If all these things are to be had by merely knocking at mercy's door, O my soul, knock hard this morning. And ask largely of your generous Lord. Do not leave the throne of grace until all your needs have been supplied. No cold hardness should restrain when such blessing is to be obtained. Um, there might be some of you guys tonight that just need to kind of knock on the door tonight. Um, and it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a day or for, you know, in my case, 29, almost 30 years. Um, that's how old I am. Um, this, is, this is something we never, we never get over. And you might need to cling to it in a fresh way tonight. You might need to boast in it in a fresh way tonight. You may need to just take a second tonight and remind yourself that if a God does this, then he's to be treasured above all things. And he's to be clung to and hoped in. Um, you just might need to cling to him and hope in him tonight. And I also want to just encourage you to take a second and just think about it. Like, if, if the shape of God's very identity is cross-shaped, then what does it mean for our lives to be cross-shaped? What does it mean for our lives to apply the principle of the cross, laying ourselves down for others? Think about how many times in your day that you have a chance to lay yourself down for someone. Um, what would that mean and look like if we lived a cross-shaped life? So let's, let's kind of cling to that boasting and worship this God, treasure him above all things, and think about what this would mean in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that um, we'd become people who would make ourselves low. Lord, we pray that we would seek demotion, not promotion. Um, Lord, we pray that we would be um, just a band of crucified followers. Um, Lord, we are just blown away that you would display your greatest, fullest glory um, in such weakness and sacrifice. Um, Lord, we, we can't believe that you would love and, and show mercy and grace like this. And Lord, so I do ask that um, for those of us in this room who feel particularly dirty, you know, who feel condemned, who feel sinful, 
Lord, who feel the weight of suffering and evil and death. Um, Lord, who need to feel a right standing before you, God. Um, who need to know um, that they have access to you. Um, Lord, who would need to understand um, that there's no fear in death anymore. And there's, and there's no power of sin that's enslaved us anymore. God, for all these ways that the message of the cross, the word of the cross, needs to be applied to our hearts and lives, God. Um, would your Holy Spirit do it now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.